0: Christ's wondrous love will never let us go. I think of Romans 8. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you would please turn to Luke 3. And uh, I want to mention as we do a special prayer situation I'm going to pray for as we close. And uh, if you remember Norma Ducille's sister, Pat, she's worshipped with with us here multiple times. And... um, they're, they're on the islands, and her son is a diver. Jamie is his name, and he's have, had different diving accidental situations. Long story short, uh, he had a a diving accident where um, he had either come up too fast or something happened, and his organs have shut down. and uh, not only that, but they have a decompression chamber available but they can't put him in it because of all the equipment that's needed necessary uh, for his body and the organs. So we're going to make special note of Jamie as we close today in, in that desperate situation. Mother's name, again, is Pat. As we look at Luke chapter 3, we're going to find four of the most recognizable words in Scripture. You brood of vipers. As we return now to uh, verse 9, the preaching of John the Baptist. And if you recall our last time, uh, in the previous verses, John had been preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we discovered how simply submerging water, immersing immersing them in water, uh, it doesn't do anything more than get them wet. If it's just... A baptism. A bath doesn't save anybody. Instead, it is our personal recognition of sin and acknowledgement of how our sin separates us from God that drives us to change our minds about God and to seek His mercy. That's what saves us. That is uh, indicative of repentance, a changed heart. It's a spirit rot, meaning the spirit propels it, compels it. It's a sincere sorrow A turning from sins combined with a turning to God. And the onset of repentance indicates that saving faith has occurred. Spiritual regeneration. And that compels us into the water because we want to testify of a merciful God. So baptism is a personal testimony about what God has done for us. Which itself eliminates any notion of infant infant baptism that is found nowhere in Scripture. Babies don't yet comprehend their sin, their separation from God, nor their need to repent. So to summarize from a couple weeks ago, it's, it's not the act of being immersed under the water that saves. It's instead the repentant heart, which is an evidence of God's gift of faith, that actually saves. That's why Jesus could assure the repentant thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because Scripture is very clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8 Not through water baptism, but through a spiritual baptism. I'd invite you today, if you have a pen nearby, uh, to jot down some verses. These are some very uh, important verses that we're going to cite today that you might want to go back and look later yourselves. In Luke 3.3, 3, John's preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Consequently, in response to John's preaching in verse 9, there are crowds of genuinely repentant sinners that are coming to Him. They've repented. They've turned to God. And they've received the forgiveness of sins, thereby fleeing God's wrath that is to come. They are God's righteous harvest. A harvest of souls. And as with every field of religious folks there are always tares. Tares are weeds. There are always tares that are mingling amongst the wheat. If any of you grew up on a farm you probably remember pigeon grass and wild oats. When they're really young they look a whole lot like the crop. In fact an untrained child you know, that hasn't learned from his father yet might look out in the field and just think it's all wheat. But the eye of the trained farmer knows no I see pigeon grass. And I need to do something about it. So those are tares, those are weeds. So along with these crowds also arrive destructive weeds and their goal is to choke out the harvest. It's a mixed audience that John is looking at here and I'll show you how we know that in a moment. But before we read our text, do you know what makes a prophet, or I'd say any shepherd of God's flock, uh, righteously indignant. It's when false converts sprout out in, out of nowhere and then they attempt to choke out God's harvest. Follow with me beginning in verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. So John began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When there arise tares in the wheat Do you know from your past scripture study who sowed them, who planted them Jesus says in his parable of the tares found in Matthew 13 verse 38 that the enemy who sowed the tares is the devil we know uh, the devil in Revelation 20 verse 2 is also referred to as Satan, he is known as the serpent, right? And Jesus also says, the tares are the sons of the evil one. So they are the sons or children of the serpent. So we have to ask in this story, who are they exactly? Fortunately, a parallel account in Matthew, Matthew 3 verse 7, tells us who these are, who these tares are that have mingled with the wheat. Matthew 3 verse 7 says, "...but when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" So John's his righteous tirade is specifically directed at the Pharisees and Sadducees that he saw amongst the crowd, the crowds that were coming." The Gospel of John, chapter 1, uh, casts more light on this. It also describes that there are in the mix priests and Levites who were, quote, sent by the Pharisees. So, so there were tares throughout. Why were they there? Why were the tares there? Were they there to repent? The answer is no. They were there to interfere with God's harvest. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 25, some of these tares, some in the crowd, they publicly attempt to actually cast doubt on the legitimacy of John's baptism. They were saying to him, Who are you? That's what they asked John. Who are you? They asked, Are you Elijah? John said, No. Are you the prophet? John said, No. Are you the Christ? John said, No. What was the response? Then why are you baptizing? Remember? Amongst all these crowds are saying, Why are you doing this? Who are you? You see, these tears, they're trying to sow in the crowds there that were coming a distrust of John. They wanted to discount John's message and baptism. They didn't accept John's baptism. They didn't believe what he was preaching. How do we know that? Again, scripture. The Pharisees employed similar tactics to discount the teaching of Christ. And later on in Luke chapter 20, verse 1, they said to Jesus, "Tell us by what authority you are doing these things?" Who is it who is the one that gave you this authority? Another, who are you, right? To Jesus this time. Do you remember Jesus' response? This is brilliant. This this is great. Perfect for our message today. Jesus said, I will also ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They got a huddle. They reasoned amongst themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you then not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death because they were convinced that John was a prophet, right? So they answer Jesus, well, we don't know where it came from. Scripture is very clear. The Pharisees, testifying by their own lips, acknowledge We didn't believe John. We didn't believe in him. We didn't believe he was truly from God. We didn't believe he was a prophet. The people were convinced that he was a prophet. So these Pharisees and Sadducees, the priests, the Levites, they came out to John. They they weren't there to repent. They weren't there to confess their sins, nor to be baptized, but really to defy and to disrupt a good harvest. Satan sent them, He sows the tares. This is why John calls them out as a brood of vipers. They're the sons of the evil one, the devil. They're not Abraham's descendants at all. They are the serpent's offspring who are unrepentant, false religious, and self-righteous. You know, there are only two other occasions in the New Testament that, that this phrase, brood of vipers, is employed, both times by Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees had attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Beelzebul. Remember? That was the unpardonable sin. Jesus said, you brood of vipers. And then later, in Matthew 23, when Jesus declares the famous eight woes against the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers. The only two other occasions in the New, in the New Testament that we see this phrase used. Well that said, by observing this, can we just acknowledge together that calling someone out as a, a brood of viper, it's not offered in the Bible as an evangelism technique. Alright? It's not. That in the New Testament, Christians... We're not instructed in any way to slide on over, hop over to aisle three in Winn-Dixie. You know, the bread aisle. And then see a group of people that we think are misbehaving and then say, You brood of vipers. Then we expect them somehow to respond to to the love of Christ that we just showed them, right? No. No. This is one of the many reasons we don't hold street signs out on the corner there that say, You brood of vipers how effective would that be? No, we show them the love of Christ to the best of our ability. Um, Unfortunately, that's precisely how some people behave. You know, they suppose they've inherited this specific ministry from John the Baptist. You know, and then after barking out insults in the public or in social media, wherever it might be, they still can't understand why nobody likes them why nobody wants to be like them, why nobody comes to Christ. And and instead, actually, they've laid themselves out as a stumbling block to others who might come to know the Lord. They become a reproach. You're probably familiar with the Westboro Baptists. It's just a reproach on Christ. Nobody wants to be Like them. So you and I, we don't inherit this ministry from John, this specific ministry, the brood of vipers ministry. Of course, there are times when when people who who claim to be Christians, they come in tearing at the flock, They, they they try to disrupt or scatter the the church. Yeah, they earn themselves a pretty stern rebuke, right? But that's a different situation. That would be to professing Christians, those who are saying they're religious. It's not an evangelism technique. You and I are not prophets like John. We don't wear Elijah's hairy coat. You know his leather belt. That was intended to signify the forerunner to Christ. Second Kings one eight, and of course Malachi. So dressing oddly doesn't enhance evangelism. These things were specific to John's ministry, and today we as Christians are to behave normally act nicely, let our good deeds and the truth of God's word win souls. You know, we we do, we come across this, and and that's the reason I'm speaking to it, is a lot of times this passage from John the Baptist is used to justify. And uh, you'll come across some pastors, other evangelists, they're they're just rude and insulting. And uh, they might even have large followings, large churches, well-attended churches. They might have a real popular YouTube channel. Most aren't winning very many people to repentance. Most aren't. Uh, actually, their churches, if they have one, they tend to attract other self-righteous people. Others who like to condemn. Others who are prideful, rude, arrogant, self-righteous people. Well, wait. A church of Pharisees, Right? And if not careful, Christians can become the exact people whom John the Baptist was calling out. Unloving, uncompassionate, uncaring. View everybody else as sinners out there in the world. Everybody else is the problem in the world, but possess in themselves no urgency to repent. The Pharisees, they didn't view themselves foremost as sinners. They viewed everyone else as sinners, They were the polar opposite of the crowds who were coming out to John to confess their sins and be baptized. They saw themselves as holy, they they were acceptable to God uh, through their doctrines, through law-keeping. Keeping the law. They concocted special ways of superficially keeping the law when it was difficult to keep the law. They claimed they were righteous through the law, that they were justified through the law, they, they didn't need that baptism of repentance. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, we know as Christians, we're not righteous through the law. What are we through the law? Condemned through the law. It's a tutor to drive us to Christ, right? No one ever becomes righteous by keeping rules, but through the grace of God. Jesus made very clear, the Pharisees, they did not believe John's baptism was from God. They didn't believe that baptism of repentance applied to them. In fact, according to their tradition, they were already acceptable to God by simply being born a Jew. Merely by that, they believed all of Israel had an inheritance in the world that was to come because their physical lineage was their attachment to Abraham. They were descendants physically of Abraham. And according to a biblical scholar named Alfred Edersheim, he was a Jewish convert to Christianity. Brilliant man, wrote a lot of different works. Edersheim's early Jewish education in the 1830s consisted of the Talmud and the Torah in a Hebrew school in Vienna. That's how he grew up before becoming a Christian. And concerning the Pharisees' boast about their association to Abraham, Alfred writes this, quote: This appears not only from the New Testament, meaning they're boasting in Abraham, and from Philo and Josephus, other historians, but from many rabbinic passages. The merits of the Father, that's a phrase they used, the merits of the Father is one of the commonest phrases in the mouth of the rabbis. Abraham was represented as sitting at the gate of Gehenna to deliver any Israelite who otherwise might have been consigned to its terrors. In fact, by their descent from Abraham, all of the children of Israel were nobles, infinitely higher than proselytes. That underscores the mindset of the Pharisees of the rabbis from a scholarly ethnic Jew who grew up learning their traditions, right? And John's ba- John the Baptist preaching that we're looking at here tells us to make the path straight, that's verse 4, every barrier and mountain will be brought low, that's verse 5, and in verse 6, all flesh, meaning all mankind, all flesh will see the salvation of God. That chafed the Pharisees. Not only this, but worse, verses 12 and 13 indicate that John was welcoming tax collectors, Gentile soldiers, into a covenant relationship with Yahweh through a proselyte baptism as well. Can you see the tension? Can you see the anger? that the Pharisees would have. Oh, how dare this cave dweller, who are you, they told him, how dare this cave dweller circumvent the authority of the priests and the scribes and the Levites by being so irreverent? Of course, John was a prophet. He got the treatment, a prophet's treatment from Israel. Being so, being a prophet, he was keenly aware. He, he knew their false motives as they were coming. And look with me at the middle of verse 8. Just imagine the look on their faces. When John says, for everybody to hear now, the whole crowd gets to hear this, do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. He strikes directly at their most treasured possession, their birthright. Directly at it, and he marks them out of de- as descendants, not of Abraham, but of the serpent. Vipers. That's what you descended from. And, and, and here, there are probably few stronger declarations. Few stronger declarations of God's sovereignty in Scripture than right here. You are Satan's spiritual offspring. You are children of vipers. No physical lineage, no bloodline, no tradition is is ever going to change that. doesn't matter which denomination you... Uh, call yourself by, whether it would be Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or whatever it might be, it it doesn't matter if your dad was a preacher or if your mother was a nun. Nobody inherits salvation through a bloodline. By being a physical descendant. descendant. He's telling them, nobody gets it that way. Instead, according to King David in Psalm 51.5, What do you and I inherit? Even at conception, according to King David? Sin. Iniquity. Spiritual deadness. That's been handed down all the way since Adam. It never skips a generation. This is one reason in Luke's genealogy that we'll see later in this chapter that Luke traces Jesus' legal lineage, though he's already been very clear that Jesus' Father was God, right, in chapters 1 and 2. He traces back Jesus' legal lineage as a Jew uh, all the way back to Adam. Spiritual deadness occurred in the garden. It's passed to everyone through the Father's loins. That's what you and I inherit. That's what we are in Adam. We're all sinners. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God we arrive spiritually dead in the delivery room, we're conceived in sin and death, we are unable to respond to God's love apart from the Holy Spirit intervening. In our church constitution, we refer to this as the doctrine of total depravity. We cannot respond apart from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, we had the spirit of disobedience. Verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, meaning everybody since Adam. Then verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Paul writes, Verse 6, and he, meaning God, raised us up with Christ. That's what God does. God raised us from spiritual deadness. He made us alive. We don't raise ourselves from spiritual deadness, we're dead. And according to John, who is God's prophet, God can raise anyone or anything he so chooses to spiritual life, even stones on a riverbank. Are you convinced that the Creator of the universe can do that? That He can raise stones to life on the riverbank? Well, let's look here. Um, Do you believe God when He spoke in Genesis 1, verse 24, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, each after its kind. God said, let the earth, the matter, bring forth living creatures, each according to their kind. And then it happened. Distinct species springing up from the earth according to their kind. This is, by the way, the, the reason that our fossil record does not offer any evidence of any transitional animals that, went between, that were between species. No evidence of that in the fossil record at all. You won't hear that on the History Channel. But it's the truth. There are no fossils of short-necked giraffes with increasingly long necks over time. That does not exist. There are no fossils or evidence of creatures about the size of a horse that over time got bigger and their ears got larger incrementally over time and then morphed into larger creatures with increasingly large ears like elephants. That is because, as Scripture says, our Creator fashioned distinct species from the matter of the earth and raised them up to life. That, that's what the evidence shows. There's not short-necked giraffes, medium-necked giraffes, longer-necked giraffes, like, uh, neck giraffes, and then giraffes like we have today. That does not exist. There's no evidence to any of that. What we have is distinct species. So... In similar fashion, God formed the first man. He was named Adam. Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man from the dust, from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That word being there is soul. God breathed nostrils into clay, and it became a living soul. John the Baptist said, From these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. That is a fact. That is a fact. God has that much power. John surely is not implying that those stones would be physical descendants of Abraham, is he? No. Physically, they weren't descendants. What kind of descendants would those stones be? Galatians 3 verse 7 tells us, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are children of Abraham, right? God has the power to raise up children of faith from cold dead stones. Galatians 3:26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants through Christ. Not by being children, offspring of Abraham. How? We're Abraham's spiritual descendants. We we have inherited not flesh and blood or genetic material as the, the Jews have. We inherited Abraham's faith, which itself is a gift of God, right? Not the result of works. We have inherited the faith of Abraham. God can raise up whichever stone he chooses. You know John the Baptist? He was the first Reformed Baptist. That's a fact. Albert Moeller from the Southern Seminary would agree with that. I'm not speaking for him, don't. He'd like to hear that. God got to be careful nowadays when you're speaking for others. God can raise up spiritual children from anywhere. From stones may it be. God's not restricted by physical lineage. He's fully able to use stones along a riverbed. If he were to so choose, that doesn't mean he did. John said he is able. Listen then. You're going to want to write this one down. Listen to God's promise to a rebellious Israel through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse 25. Look at the focus on God here. He's chastening them and then speaks of a future date where he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. He continues, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinance. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. That's God's choosing. I will put a new heart within you. I will cause my spirit to dwell within you. Glory be to God. Where is the room for boasting in that? None. Our heart is completely in the hand of the Lord. In Acts chapter 16, just one more. Paul the Apostle is sharing the gospel with a group of women in a Roman colony named Philippi. Down by a riverside. And as he's doing so in verse 14 of Acts 16, a woman named Lydia From the city of Thyatira, she was a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. That means she was a devout Jew. She hadn't been converted yet. But she was a worshiper of God. She was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Amen? There is no possible way to take credit for your own salvation. No possible way whatsoever. We don't have anything in us that the neighbor across the street doesn't have. We've got the same sin as they do. We're no better than they are. We make no better choices than they do. It is by the grace of God that He made our hearts alive. Glory be to God. The Pharisees, they weren't essential to God's plan. He didn't need them. By the way, that would be a good thing to remember for us. God doesn't need us. He's completely self-sufficient over time you look at people it's like well i don't know how this place would go without me sometimes i look in the mirror i'm like i think it might go better without me it's just by grace that we're here together god god's church everything all the you guys you'll be just fine if i drop dead here today perfectly fine the church would go on It doesn't stop because of any of us individuals. We're not that essential. We have an honor in order to serve God. The Pharisees thought they were children of God, uh, not due to a free gift of grace evidenced by repentance, but due to their ethnicity. John assured them, You're sorely mistaken sorely mistaken. In fact, verse 9 John says, indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. For those who, who do not receive grace, nor come to repentance, they're going to bear a costly price at the judgment. It'll be very costly. Now, there's going to be the wrath of God. Pharisees weren't fleeing the wrath of God. They didn't believe there'd be any wrath on Jews at all. Sounds like a lot of theology I hear today. There's not going to be any wrath. God's just going to you know, give everybody a king's ex. Let them through. There's going to be a wrath. The Pharisees were there they, to interfere with God's grace by discouraging others who actually were fleeing the wrath. That's what Satan does through his children. Discourage others from fleeing the wrath Of God, But there is wrath to come. We're going to discuss that next week. I don't want to just week after week be talking about God's wrath. But that is in our passage today. We will continue that next week. Verse 17 goes into that again. For our remainder of our time today, I'd just like for us to consider what we're supposed to do. As recipients of God's grace and His gift of righteousness, what are we supposed to do? I'm very glad that that question is asked of John by the members of the crowd, the ones who had genuinely responded to John's preaching. And then John replies to them. The question is, what do people who have repented of sins, trusted in God, even gone on to be baptized, what do they do? What do they do? John gives the answer. And the answer applies well to us because the Old Testament saints were saved the same way as New Testament saints, by grace, through faith. They were to live out their life pleasing to God, the remainder of their lives. This is the subject we left off of last week on the topic of sanctification. How does a believer respond to the grace of God? Look with me at verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? John would answer and say to them, From here... You know, depart everyone that you run into. Call him out as a brood of vipers. No. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, do what I've just done. Um, that's not what he instructed them to do. John's passion, his zeal, it wasn't just to offend people. His zeal was to see others repent and trust in Christ, in the Lord, who was to come. So he offers here, Three answers to the new converts. Be generous, be honest, be content. Be generous, be honest, be content. These are indicative of what a converted sinner looks like. Verse 11, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. That's the instruction of John the Baptist. First Timothy 6.18, uh, there Paul instructs Timothy To tell the church, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. People who've had their hearts made alive in Christ, who've had their hearts of stone removed, and one put in that is of flesh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, they're generous people. Especially amongst God's people. In 1 John 3.17, while speaking to Christians, the Apostle John says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? I mean, how does the Spirit abide in you? The answer is it doesn't. 1 John 3.14, same passage there. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. We're concerned about the brethren. The nation of Israel The people who John is predominantly preaching to at the Jordan, not exclusively, but predominantly, they were very familiar with the Old Testament commands to care for their brothers. To care for the rest of the nation. That's why they left the corners of the field to be gleaned. Why you have stories of the Old Testament, books of the Old Testament, um, about Boaz, who gave to those who were in need. That's what God's people do in their community of people. Um, The generous fellowship... Of God's people, that means the generosity that is evidenced through us is a is a magnet. God uses that as a magnet to draw others to Him, the unregenerate to Him. When exposed to the love displayed by the generosity and our love for others, it's interesting in verse eleven that John also says food and covering, basically what you see repeatedly through the New Testament, food and covering. But when people see the generosity and love for others, those surrounding people are supposed to say, you know what, I'm really sick of the world. I'm really sick of the selfishness and and everybody's scratching to get ahead. And these people are different. These people share with those who are in need. They work hard, as Paul told the Thessalonians, so that they would have something to share. With those who are truly in need. And people are supposed to say, I don't want to be part of the world anymore. This is better in here. Amen? It is. It is. And in His sovereignty, God uses our generosity to convince others that He truly is dwelling in us. And in verse 12, God uses honesty. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And John said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. You know, the tax collectors, they were, they were renowned for being cheats, right? They were some of the most corrupt people in Israel. And their occupation, it was a type that was easily manipulated for gain. And you think about assessments and other things, I don't know what they could have done. But they got by with a lot. And, and because of that, the profession itself drew people that were of that persuasion, you know. People who wanted to have that advantage would be drawn to it, to where the tax collecting population, uh, that profession was just saturated with criminals. People who were corrupt, opportunistic. Tax collectors, they had the access to the, to the greatest circle of people all different walks of life, all different areas. Imagine if that manipulative tax collector who they all knew suddenly became honest. Suddenly quit extorting from them. Changed, acted differently because of the Holy Spirit within him. Folks, this is one reason that after conversion, after we've trusted in Christ and we've been regenerated, we can't go back to our old way. Our old sinful habits. No, you can't return to sitting at the bar all night. To going out and carousing. You can't go back to that. Going out clubbing. You can't return to your past ways of cheating. Why? Because if you do, everyone around you who knows you is going to say, I don't believe in what you're telling me. I don't believe in this Holy Spirit you talk about because you haven't changed. We must change. The circle of influence that we have must see us new and alive in Christ that the Holy Spirit has made a difference. We can't testify that God is not real. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit doesn't allow us To completely go back to our old way of life. Either as a father, he's going to chasten us. Or we're going to have a serious sorrow by the Holy Spirit. If there isn't something going on that's turning you back to God, perhaps you had a false conversion. Perhaps you accepted some, some principles about Jesus. Perhaps you believed he actually was a real man. Some people think he's a figment of imagination. Perhaps you received, yeah, I believe he really lived. Perhaps you did believe some facts about him that it was you know, in Israel, in the nation of Israel, and that he actually had a ministry. But per- perhaps you haven't repented of your sins and seen yourself as a sinner if you're not getting any chastening from God when you misbehave. We, we don't want to go that route. We want to serve God because it's important to those around us. Uh, it, it's the reason that John is so serious about bearing fruit Generosity, honesty, going into the next passages. They are indicators of whether God has truly changed our heart. They're the barometer. They're the measurement. So keep on bearing fruit, we're told. What else? Verse 14. Some soldiers were questioning uh, John, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And John said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. You know, through false accusation, by intimidation, through force, by utilizing fear, it is possible for peacekeeping soldiers representing the state, these are probably Roman soldiers, it is possible for them to extort money from people. To use their influence, their power, to influence others to give them money to try and get out of trouble. Most, people, most of us don't want to be in trouble, do we? Those characteristics are of discontentedness. There are some who just don't ever have enough. That could apply to all of us in ways. John tells them, be content. Don't take advantage of your authority or your influence or your position to rob people. Be satisfied with what you earn honestly. And, and spiritual rebirth gives contentedness with what you have. All these changes, generosity, honesty, contentedness, they're fruitful indicators that our hearts have been changed by God. And those around you who know you, who have seen you, they will see these evidences of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, and God will use them to draw people to faith. He will. In His sovereignty, He'll do that. In our scripture reading earlier, we learned God had chosen to use our godly behavior as a nation of priests, a royal priesthood, our behavior is a magnet. Notice John doesn't tell anyone here to you know just wash yourself of your occupation of being a tax collector. Don't just drop your sword as a soldier. He doesn't say to abandon your occupation. He says transform your occupation. Make it godly. From Scripture reading earlier, 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a way of witnessing where people see you're different from everybody else. It doesn't absolve us from speaking to them the truths, the hard truths about Christ and about our sin. In fact, in the passage, Peter suggests that they already know you've made a profession of faith in Christ in 1 Peter 2.12. And at first we can anticipate that our Christian beliefs, that they'll chafe people. Especially those who've known us for a long time in our previous way of life. Um, Things such as salvation being available only through Christ. That chafes people. How dare you? You're my old friend. We used to do stuff together. Now you're being so exclusive. Biblical commands of abstinence from sexual immorality, drunkenness, carousing, idolatry. Those those things offend unbelievers. Who are you to tell me that? That's the Bible that tells it. And Peter even says in the same letter, chapter 4, they're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. Does that happen? It does. But what eventually happens to those that God is calling? True Christians persevere in love and good deeds. We keep our behavior excellent among the unbelievers, the Gentiles. They for a while are going to slander us. But because of our good deeds and our gentleness and our reverence, as they observe us, they are going to come to believe that God is real by what they see in us. They can't deny God. They believe in Christ. They believe in our witness. And in the day of visitation, rather than being cast out into the outer darkness suffering the wrath to come, they will glorify God with their lips because His Holy Spirit working out through us was the instrument by which they came to trust in Christ. God will get all the glory. That's what John is truly zealous for. He had a ministry of repentance. He had a zeal for exhorting others to love and good deeds. And according to Hebrews 10.25, That's one of the primary reasons, not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons that we come together as a church. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Surely John is very zealous about protecting the flock of God from intrusion of wolves, right? No denying that. But he didn't indiscriminately just bark insults at people. It wasn't the thrust of John's ministry. The thrust of his ministry was love, repentance, good deeds, That's what draws people to Jesus. Consider the barking in the world today, folks. Does any of that draw you? No. That never convinces anyone. Never draws anybody. That's not winsome. Nobody really wants to be like them. Nobody gets won over by anger. What do they get won over by? I saw this even in my own family, my parents. It took time. At first they thought something really wacky went wrong with me and Rita. They were right. We got crazy for Jesus. But as we persevered over time, that we were consistent, that we loved, even though still imperfect, the Lord used it to bring them alive. We got to see the fruit of that. It's completely amazing to people see to see people won by love and good deeds. Titus 2.14 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Amen. Let's pray.